Welcome to Mythic, a podcast where we explore meaningful living through the power of myth. I'm your host, Boston Blake. Hello there, and welcome back to Mythic, uh, or welcome to Mythic if it's your first time listening. Before the pandemic, a few years ago, I was planning to start a PhD program in mythological studies at Pacifica Graduate Institute. And the pandemic kind of screwed that up, and uh, it's on hold for now. But during that process, I met a super cool dude. His name is Dr. David Odoricio. We connected, we reconnected through Pacifica's Applied Mythology Certification Program. It was an online program that I did in 2021. And now I am so stoked to have him here as a guest on the podcast. His background is chock full of spiritual exploration, academic achievement, and some superhero geekery. And we're going to get into a little bit of all of that today. David earned his PhD in East-West Psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, where I live. Currently, he serves as director for the Retreat at Pacifica Graduate Institute, which offers online seminars, residential workshops, and interactive conferences. His work has been published in the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology, Quadrant, Philosophy East and West, and the International Journal of Transpersonal Studies, to name a few. If you check out this episode's show notes, the first link you'll see takes you to Dave's lectures. And they cover all kinds of topics, ranging from Hinduism and Dionysus to Grant Morrison's Invisibles comic and Chris Claremont's Phoenix Saga. There is a breakdown of Jean Grey and the Phoenix Saga that will blow your mind. David has this uncanny ability to mine the world and media for meaning. And I loved every minute of my conversation with him. And now I get to share it with you. So without further ado, here is Dr. David Odoricio. What is your origin story? You sent me those questions to reflect on, and it really got me thinking a lot about childhood and the importance of childhood regarding mythic and the archetypal. And that got me thinking about Jung's memories, dreams, reflections, his autobiography, biography, autobiography, and his whole idea of a personality number one and a personality number two, that there's a spirit that's alive, at least for him as a child, that he called personality. One of them was more of a shamanically nature-based, spiritually-oriented aspect of himself that would talk to rocks and talk to trees and was very much connected to to plants in the natural world and, 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 and the spiritual realm or what he would later consider the numinous qualities of life. And then he had this other aspect of him, which I think was personality number two, which um, was more of the extroverted, external intellectually driven, that's the part of him that eventually is drawn to medical school and studies and, and academics. And I really relate to that. I think it's a very potent way for me to frame my own origin story. Because as a child, I spent a lot of time in nature and a lot of time in, in the woods. And it was very important to me as a child. It, it fed me in, in very deep, important and, and lasting ways. 
And then as I entered into my adolescent years, I was consumed with music. I'm a drummer and I was playing in bands and, and in high school, I started taking it more seriously and played in a band that we were recording and putting out albums and, and my whole focus shifted to business and music and like rock and roll and uh, punk rock. And by the time I got to college, personality number one or these earlier aspects of myself just completely resurfaced in a very surprising way. And I actually ended up going into colleges to study religion and religious studies. And as part of that, growing up Catholic, I felt a very strong pull towards contemplative aspects of Christianity. And I, I ended up spending my junior year of college living in a contemplative Roman Catholic men's religious community, where again, it was like time in the woods and, and nature and, and more of an internal introspective kind of experience. The 20 years that passed between then and now are like another story. But what ended up happening was during that year, it was a very formative year. I was living at this essentially a monastery and I was also going to college. And I happened to take a class with a very progressive rabbi who had done his PhD at the California Institute of Integral Studies in the 80s, I think, before the school was even accredited. And I had a class called Psyche and Spirit, and it was on the integration of psychology and spirituality, and a lot of it was on deaf psychology and, and Jung and Jungian psychology. So that year was so important in my life. It was my junior year of college. And it was both the inner and the outer, like the, the inner was this rich, extraordinarily rewarding, deep, introspective year of living with this religious community. And then the outside was being introduced to Carl Jung and reading Abraham Maslow and learning about transpersonal psychology and studying with somebody who I would then go and I ended up doing my PhD at CIS in San Francisco, I don't know, 10 years later. So it was a journey to get there, but a lot of that stuff was planted really in that year of my life, which is extraordinary how these sort of things happen to us at different times in our life. That is quite a journey. So much of it's encapsulated in your Twitter handle, Monk Rocker. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Now you know where it comes from. When you were young and you were having that experience in nature, what were the stories that you were hearing? Do you remember favorite children's books or movies or cartoons or stories that were informing you? Yeah, it's interesting. When you first asked, what were you hearing? I, I immediately went back to being in nature. And what I was hearing was like the sounds of wind in trees and creeks flowing and tadpoles in creeks and like what I was hearing, like the stories that I was hearing were the stories that were being told in the natural world. And so that was happening like at one level. And then another level, the stories that I was hearing were biblical. I was raised in a very committed Italian Catholic uh, household. My first comic book was the Bible. It was like an illustrated Bible. And I went to Catholic school and I went to church every Sunday, you know, and I became an altar server. So the biblical narrative was like the first graphic novel that captivated me at that level of the archetypal and the mythic. And then populating that as a child of the 80s was all of the insanity of, of the television, pop culture, Saturday cartoon, like sugar cereal, like 
pandemonium that, that the eighties was and just the explosion of toys and plastic and just like all that stuff. So that was a big part of it too. Do you remember any particular stories that you loved from the Bible? from those from that graphic novel the quote-unquote old testament portion like the hebrew scripture portion because that was like the noah story so the noah story was of course completely wild in a graphic novel as you had all of these animals being herded as pairs into an ark and the flood and just the the terror and sort of the trauma of all of this um was extraordinary as Jung would say, the Hebrew God or the God of the Old Testament is very much an ambivalent symbol, archetypal symbol, both in its beauty and goodness and also its extreme wrathfulness and destruction and terror. In the imagination of a child, particularly when it's put into images and into graphic narrative, is actually quite powerful. <laughs> and then you had your contemplative time in nature. You found music and music it sounds like it just seized you in a different way. What was that experience like? It was, in a certain sense, religious. We're really circling around the, the Dionysian here. Um, mm -hmm. But that's the nature-based spirituality, the, the sort of the, the pulsating aliveness of playing live music and, and particularly playing drums and like what it's like to be a drummer in the ways that it's very unique and different from like playing guitar or a different kind of instrument. I mean, there's a very primal aspect to playing drums. And I was a John Bonham, Led Zeppelin was like, he was like my guy. And I would just beat the shit out of my drum. It was a very raw primal experience for me that was religious in a different kind of way. It was different than what I would discover later in life. I don't want to set up these splits or polarities, but it's like an above ground, below ground sort of thing. What Nietzsche or what the Jungians would refer to as like the Dionysian and the Apollonian. You have the light, bright, official religion existing above ground with its certitudes and its clarity and its emphasis on rightness and goodness and order. But there's always, there's always an underground I just read your essay, Dionysus Out of Exile. Yeah. And this is just a perfect segue into that because one of the things that you argue in that essay is that there's a dismembered aspect of masculinity, a dismembered shape of masculinity. Apollo represents a more socially acceptable version. Zeus might be a paragon of this kind of toxic masculinity. And then you have Dionysus embodying something very different. How do you see that Dionysian masculinity? Let me just back up for a second. At that time when I wrote that, I was thinking very much in terms of gender at that time. But just to connect to what we were just talking about, I, I think it's also about religion or religious instinct, which also, of course, has these very strong archetypal and, and mythic and mythological components. And so it's not just about this whole dismemberment and, 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 and remembering from like a male perspective, but I think it's also a religious impulse and religious instinct, especially when you see how much institutional religions, which in many ways are, are institutionalized myths have declined and both of these things are happening at the same time the decline and the death of the american white man is happening in tandem with the decline of institutional churches and religions which are patriarchal many of them in their origin and their nature and their function so 
there's this decline and this dismembering happening on a wide scale, whether you look at it from the gender perspective of patriarchy, the white men that have been on top for long time and the way that connects with our religious which are our mythic structures in our current society like there's a massive downturn and potentially a renewal and that's the whole idea right particularly with the dionysian mythos is that it's about dismembering and then remembering but it's making whole in a different way and my thinking or my hope is that particularly with the american masculinity piece the remembering and the remaking whole will need to include uh, the feminine and women and marginalized persons of color. That's going to have to be a part of the re the remaking, the remaking of, of, of men, or at least heteronormative white folk men. The image that came to mind is the remembering of like the human body, the collective as a human body. These pieces have been split and disenfranchised from one another in this patriarchal system and that we may be in the descent right now in that underworld space. How do you think the study of mythology, what is the mythologist's role in, in this transformation, in this ritual that we're undertaking? James Hillman, the, the, archetypal thinker, archetypal psychologist, he has this phrase that he used, he referred to it as a therapy of ideas. He, at one point in his career, he shifted away from working with individuals and doing individual therapy to being more interested in doing cultural therapy and doing therapy with the myths of our time. And I think that's the job or the role of a mythologist today. The one question we get here at Pacifica is like always, oh, what do you do with a PhD in mythological studies? But in a certain sense, it's one of the most important things that a person could be doing in our current times because it's a barometer test of what's happening in the culture. And it's training to be able to read and pay attention to the signs of the times and to see which myths, quote unquote, are, are speaking through us today because they're not new. If Jung is correct in this idea of archetypes or archetypal reality, that there are these sort of energetic, archaic patterns of the psyche that are instinctual and libidinal, reoccur in strikingly similar patterns throughout the centuries in different cultural dress. If that's correct, and I think there's plenty of evidence for it, that's one of the most important things you can do is learn how to understand these patterns, both so an individual person that's sensitive to this stuff doesn't lose their mind and get caught up in it, but that you can become almost like a cultural diagnostic. You can be a person who does therapy with the wider culture. And that's why I think pop culture is so important because pop culture in many ways is, I'm using this phrase intentionally, it's the screen upon which we project our stories and it happens literally in the film industry, but it also happens in the newspaper and you can watch it walking down the street. In this summer's applied mythology program, your presentation about the, about Phoenix in the Marvel comics universe just absolutely blew my mind. The depth that you looked at that phenomenon, Chris Claremont, it started with him. Is that right? Yeah. You did a deep dive into 
the Phoenix Saga, and I'll absolutely leave a link to that lecture in the show notes. But what do you think is going on with this rise in superheroes, that superheroes dominate the film and television landscape right now in an unprecedented way? Yeah, it's a really important and really complicated question. If I hear you correctly, you're asking why superheroes, why now? Yes. And something that you said made me think the title, Our Gods Wear Spandex. There's something about these heroes that have shown up again and again, and they seem to be here again, but in a massive way on a global scale. Yeah, it's interesting. We started out talking about the Bible and the, that sort of graphic novel. Those are stories of the hero. There's a whole cast of characters, but a lot of them are very heroic stories. And there's a lot of conquering. There's a lot of good guys versus bad guys. There's the, the winning tribe that has Yahweh on their side and, and, and Yahweh, you know, their deity enables them to crush their opponents. What I was saying earlier about Jung's notion of archetypes as recurring patterns or myths, this story of conquest, this story of the hero, you don't even have to read Joseph Campbell. You just have to pay attention. This story of the hero and the villain is archetypal in the sense that it is perennial, right? The question is why and when does it constantly as fiercely and as intensely as it is now and as it has in certain times in history. And another one of those times is when the contemporary American comic book hero was born, which was around uh, a pre and post World War II kind of culture where you had like Captain America punching Hitler in the face on the cover of certain comic book issues. So there are certain times in our culture when the hero archetype gets constellated and if it's not happening sometimes with devastating consequences in history it happens through our religious systems you know the crusades for example the, the crusades in the middle ages were a perfect example of the constellation of the hero archetype in a specifically devastatingly religious culture now we live in a, a sort of postmodern and maybe even post-religious culture now. So the way in which the hero archetype is constellating is through our, our pop culture as the dominant carrier of our archetypal myths today. The question is why? We know that it's something that happens, but why? Why now? And there's a number of different ways to look at that. One is from a very critical, deconstructive way that I think does have to do with the shifting currents of American soil particularly what's happening with the, the heteronormative white man. But what's interesting is that throughout the last decade, and Phoenix certainly ties into this, what we're seeing is a lot of these heroic male roles being recast as feminine or as women. You have these extraordinarily strong female leads, which speaks to shifting currents of our time. But the, the critique and then the criticism of that piece is that you have women that are being trained or being taught to, to act like men. So it's still a very specific, almost, I don't want to say patriarchal, but it's dominant in a certain sense that men in many aspects are still writing women in their own image. If I hear you correctly, you know, if we're thinking of patriarchy, not just as 
a male dominated structure, but as a hierarchical structure, there's a shape to it, regardless of the gender associated with it. And it doesn't solve any problems to simply change to envision somebody else at the top of a shape that's toxic in itself, uh, a system that's toxic in itself. Did I get that right? Yeah, it's a psychology. Patriarchy is a psychology. That's a great way to think of it. Like it takes a shape or it takes a form and it can still exist as a construct or as an energetic imprint or as a, a complex, a cultural complex. And then the people that are on top can rotate as long as that complex is still there. It's still going to be a system of power and domination, which still means that there's a good guy on the top. Anytime there's a good guy, there has to necessitate a villain. Mm-hmm. This goes back to what we were talking about here with the, with the hero and, and the the heroic complex. Anytime there's a hero, it means that there's something that has to be conquered. And I think this is one of the greatest challenges maybe of uh, that's implicit in human nature, because on one hand, we need to be heroic and we need to be courageous because there are things that we need to come up against and to be able to face heroically. But at the same time, there is, there's a difference between acting heroically and acting out a complex and Mm -hmm. the difference between that is one is it becomes one-sided so the hero becomes all good and this was Jung's big critique of Christianity or the Christ figure was that Christ was an all good hero he was born without sin right he had no original sin within him so he was all good and anything that is all good by necessity has to project its shadow or its evil onto an other So anytime you have an all good hero, it necessitates an all bad villain. And and personally, that's where I'm getting really stuck and struggling and wondering where this superhero empire in our contemporary Hollywood film pop culture is going to go because we've had 20 years of good guys beating up on bad guys only to have it be replayed over and over again. Where does this go for us? Where does this go for us? So that's my critical piece about, about the complex of the hero. He doesn't know what to do if he doesn't have anyone to kill. He's very one-dimensional in that regard, or she. There's this polarity. There's nothing to soften the polarity. There's nothing to triangulate the, or shift it. It's all going back and forth, good, evil, black, white, masculine, feminine, and the, even those constructs seem to be they're coming into question like what is masculine and feminine the trickster and dionysus has a trickster element to him it's something that we demonize the trickster messes with our idea of how things should be and something gets really twisted when the trickster becomes evil we lose something and i think it can constellate the hero in this way that you're describing so like thinking of thor and loki's a trickster god you put him in marvel comics and he is thor's opposite so that's exactly it because he's actually in reality not thor's opposite he's his brother and there's a pairing there's a link there that they're actually complementary. So with Thor, you have this sort of like chiseled, rugged masculinity. And then with Loki, you have more of this Dionysian femininity or androgyny. And that's the important piece is that cultures, or at least more traditional cultures, have always had this kind of uh, clown, jester, in-between figure who could transverse worlds and was not entirely identified with either. So this is a figure that by nature can straddle and transcend binaries and polarity. 
it's very interesting to me that kind of energy has emerged in, in our previous uh, presidential political spectrum, because in many ways, we had president who was both trickster, but also, depending on who you ask, either hero or villain. But regardless, the former president was a very dark trickster role and played a trickstery role with the ability to manipulate facts and, and manipulate truth. So it's interesting to me that with all of the American obsession with heroism and valor and these traditional masculine qualities, significant portion of the American people elected an extraordinarily trickstery figure who in a lot of ways exemplified those characteristics, but also at the same time, upended the entire culture as a whole. It's like the return of the repressed. Even if the trickster is repressed, the trickster will reappear. And in this sense, reappeared in a very public political way, but with a really dark twist. And all the QAnon stuff, that's all very trickstery. So I think in a certain sense, what we're talking about, we're talking about the death of the hero, but maybe even more constructively or positively, we're talking about the resurrection of the resurgence of the trickster. <laughs> and, and how can we actually honor and cultivate more positive trickster-like capacities and qualities so the trickster doesn't come out in this negative capacity to, to completely pull the rug out from underneath us or our society as a whole. How do we actually befriend more of that trickstery kind of energy? I'm rereading the Odyssey right now, and one of the things that is really jumping out is that Odysseus He's just lying through his teeth through the whole thing. His first impulse when he shows up someplace is to lie. He's in disguise. He's withholding. And he is a hero. Are you a Game of Thrones person? I am. But if I'm honest, I had so much trouble following that series. I was mostly interested in the relationships and individual scenes. Okay. So I just as an important, I think, pop cultural phenomenon, Tyrion Lannister, who he plays the, well, he's, he's handed the king to a number of different rulers, but Tyrion Lannister's character as a marginalized person, as a, a quote unquote dwarf or a half man, as they call him, he has this perspective from literally this perspective from below. And it's interesting that he ends up, he's so aligned with more of the heroic figures. And there's a very specific interaction between Jon Snow, who he, he completely exemplifies traditional heroic sort of rugged values and like masculine values. And then you have Tyrion Lannister, who's more of the inquisitive, clever, uh, trickstery, politically savvy. And there's this wonderful scene where you know, Jon Snow could have lied to help the team, but instead he, because he can't lie because he's a man of virtue. And Tyrion says to him, you know, you could have lied. You know, it could help us once in a while if you would just tell a lie. And it's that sort of thing. And you know, James Hillman, in his wonderful essays on the Senex and the Puer, he talks about how oftentimes in history, in classical mythology, they're paired that the Senex, the old man, and the Puer, the boy, who's oftentimes Hermes, they're paired. So you have Saturn and, and Mercury, or Saturn and Hermes, who oftentimes appear together to represent both of these polarities or qualities of these different archetypal aspects of masculinity, that we're actually supposed to be able to trade places, that, that there is a time 
to act from the place of the Senex, and then there's a time to, you know, put on the face of the puer. And the ability, the, the mastery or the skillfulness is the ability to, to embody them, but to embody them both in different aspects. So I, I think that's really important. Can we take a moment and define Senex and puer for people listening to this who may not be Jungian oriented? Yeah, there are Latin terms for the old man, and puer means youth or the young boy. It's the old qualities of age, the wisdom that comes through age and is earned through experience. And then the puer are the more youthful qualities of dreaming and inspiration and vision and idealism. And in and of themselves, it's the stuff of life. But what oftentimes happens is that in our stories, because they're archetypes, in our stories, they oftentimes become one-sided. So you have different characters that just represent one of those things. And then we end up oftentimes just identifying with one of those things. So instead of the more generative qualities of the wise old man, we might get stuck in the more chiseled, hardened, stuck in our ways kind of qualities. That's the Senex in its more negative capacity or the Puer in its more negative capacity which is the idealistic dreamer, when it becomes disconnected from the Senex, it, it has no grounding, and it loses its legs, it has no connection to the earth, so it just flies away. And, and Hillman's whole thing is that these are actually vitally connected aspects, that Saturn and Mercury, that the Senex and the Puer actually need each other to renew one another, as well as to grow. When people talk about institutional religion, they're talking about the Senex that's become disconnected from the Puer. It's all form and it's all structure, but it's lost touch with the essential spirit. It's lost touch with the puer, but then you also have the new age movement, which is almost entirely puer and has no senex grounding or structures to contain it. So that's another thing that's very interesting about our current crisis or the decline of institutional religion, but also the explosion of new age spirituality and new age culture. That just nailed me. It creates suspicion around resistance to a spiritual dimension of things because neither one is satisfying for a huge swath of people. I find both of those descriptions, if those are my only two options for an experience of spirituality, I don't want any part of either one of them. So what does an integrated, soulful spirituality, an embodied spirituality, look like? Do you have a sense of that? That's a great question. That's one of the reasons why I went to CIS. I wanted to go to graduate school. I, I had a very wonderful master's experience. I did my master's degree, very traditional, relatively progressive Catholic seminary type of culture. And, and it was extraordinarily rigorous. But I knew that what I was going through at that time in my life, I wanted to ask questions about integration of embodiment, bringing spiritual inquiry into academic studies. I wanted something that was more holistic and integrated. That was a big, the buzz in, I don't know, the early 2000s was like holistic education and all these schools were talking about mind, body, spirit. But in practice and pedagogically, you were still just sitting there in a chair as a passive receiver taking in information. I wanted to do something that was a practitioner focused to be in class doing practices, whether it was embodiment practices or somatic practices or spiritual practices. And that's what I got from the East West program at, at CIS. And, and it really made me 
think differently about the question that you just raised. I think it's a work in progress because what happened in the 1960s and the 70s when a lot of these institutions were seeded or, or came alive, places like the CIS, there was such a cultural upheaval in which all of these questions and inquiries and practices all emerged, but there wasn't a whole lot of containing structure. And it's taken a lot of these organizations like 40 or 50 years to actually try to contain the massive, here we are, Senex and Puer, to try to contain that wellspring of inspiration that came up around the founding of these institutions. And then it takes a long time. It's not answering the questions you just asked. You have to do the question. It's like the whole Rilke thing about living the questions and someday you'll live into the answer. I think that's what's happening. It's something that we live into, but we have to do it both at the institutional level and culturally. Like our culture right now is living into a lot of upheaval, a lot of questions. You have to live into it so that hopefully we can someday live into the answer. Integration is not, it's something that has never been seen before. So we have a lot of examples of things not working. One of my professors from CIS, Jorge Ferrer, wrote this paper, what does an embodied spiritual life look like? And there's a quote in, in something else he wrote about the history of religion or the history of spiritual practices is in a lot of ways is a history of dissociation. It's a history of mostly men doing spiritual practices to try to get out of the body or, or transcend the body. You don't have a whole lot of examples of what does it actually look like to live an embodied spiritual life. These are, in a certain sense, new questions, you know, that people are asking today. Do you think it's possible? Is integration a thing that we can do or is integration a sort of ideal that we, that, that keeps us trying? that keeps us moving in a direction? I think it's both. I shared that story earlier about when I was living at that contemplative religious community when I was you know, like 19 and 20. And that was when I first learned about Jung. And it was the first time I ever heard the word or the, or, or the concept of wholeness. And it's both what sort of kept me engaged and kept me alive spiritually, but it's also what led to me making decisions to not like formally enter the community and take a vow of celibacy, for example. And it's interesting how that concept or that idea of wholeness or integration, it became like an ideal. But I think with stuff like that, some of these things, it becomes this signpost that you just keep having to live into it. It's one of the, and it's, it keeps moving. It's like the, the milestone of the goalpost keeps moving down the field. Do you have an image of wholeness right now? What is your current understanding of wholeness at a more personal level than collective? This word is so overused, but like welcoming home, the unions call it the shadow, but like welcoming home all aspects of myself. It's welcoming home the, the young parts and welcoming home the old parts and welcoming home the wounded parts and welcoming home the nature-based parts that, you know, were, were rejected or neglected in my, you know, religious tradition of upbringing. And it's like this work of reclamation.
Do you have a practice right now? How is this living in, in your life? I think a lot of it is, has to do with paying attention. I'm not alone in this, but I'm, I'm one of those people that my psyche is pretty active. And, and when I don't pay attention to it, it really pounds at the door. So in a certain sense, it's a very active presence in my life that it's almost integrate or die. There's that phrase from the Gospel of Thomas, the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, you might have heard. It's, it's if you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. I love that quote. I didn't remember where it was from. And I so relate to that, having a very noisy psyche. If I drift too far, it comes and clotheslines me. I was fortunate because at CIS, I was surrounded by people like that. And, and here at Pacifica, a lot of our students are like that. You know, I'm constantly getting emails from students that are like, sorry, I just you know it's either like an illness or a car accident. A lot of people that say, sometimes they don't say yes. Sometimes it's Jonah being swallowed by the whale. Sometimes the rug just gets pulled out from underneath us. People that are, let's just say, involved in that sort of dialogue with their psyche, like, yeah, it's, for some of us, it really is. It's do or die. It's wake up or don't. I don't like being so black and white or extreme about it, but those, those for you, Boston, or the, your listeners, like, they're, people get it. Yeah, I do think, like, if you get it, you get it. And that binary, if it's not real, it is certainly a persistent illusion. Speaking of Pacifica, so you're the director of the retreat at Pacifica, is that correct? Yes. Without going into the whole story, the, the grail right now looks to me like a PhD in mythological studies from Pacifica. And there are just reasons I can't pursue that right now. So the retreat at Pacifica, getting to do the applied myth program, there are two other programs coming up that I am just chomping at the bit for. So initially the idea behind the retreat at Pacifica is that people would come here to both of our campuses are gorgeous coastal campuses in Santa Barbara and actually be able to have a physical retreat. And, and clearly that's not possible. It hasn't been possible for quite some time. So we've had to do some rebranding over the past few years and, and we're now shifting more towards Pacifica Online because what we've seen is that with our online programs, we're able to reach so many more people that are hungry for what you've just shared. People are wanting this kind of archetypal mythological depth psychological content because I think it helps people frame and, and, and a capacity for understanding like what actually is happening right now culturally, that we are going through a massive cultural shift that there are these very strong, almost I'm thinking about Rick Tarnas and his work with cosmology and uh, archetypal astrology. And there are tremendous forces that are shaping and reshaping our society right now. And Pacifica really creates a home for people to understand and lean into that. So they can become those people we were talking about earlier, people that can become cultural therapists and not just individual or family therapists. So you asked me about Pacifica's role in all this. I think that's part of it, but Pacifica like CIS and like Esalen and Naropa and so many of these extraordinary places, Krupalu Center, where I used to work in Western Massachusetts, I have a lot of history there. A lot of these places emerged from the 1960s and the 1970s and the spiritual cultural upheavals that were happening at that time. But what's happening is that a lot of these organizations, as they're starting to turn, you know, 30 and then 40 and some of them 50 years old, 
they're having to face these Senex Pu'er kinds of questions. We were talking about music earlier and the whole thing in the 90s was like sell out. Like if you were a punk band, did you sell out or did you go corporate? As you, any entity, any business entity, whether it's individual or, or corporate, you have to consider the notion of going, you want to go public, you have to have certain corporate business practices and things in, in place and in order. So all of these institutions have, some of them have had some really difficult learning curves because they're like, how do we hold on to the spirit of the seventies or the eighties or the spirit of the founder? How do you shift away from that to create enough institutional coherence that you can actually outlive the first wave or the first generation of charismatic founders and that you can actually create an institution that lasts. And in order to do that, you really have to be in touch with the Senex. Mm. Can't just be pure pu'er. And I think that's what a lot of these organizations are really uh, going through and have been going through, particularly over the last several years. It's a question of how do you stay in business or how do you perpetuate a, a healthy generative business and business model and not lose the spark of the founder? With Esselin's, Michael Murphy was a big part of the, the human potential movement. He created a, a tenonos in many ways for the human potential movement to, to have a physical structure. That's the Senex, right? He created a structure with Dick Price and, and other folks of the early Esselin community so that people like Abraham Maslow and Stan Groff and Joseph Campbell and these extraordinary luminaries and figures that have a place to gather on the wild, rugged edge of the continent and the container, because if it's a healthy container, it can hold the sparks and then the sparks ignite into a greater and greater fire. Other communities have had to go through immense amount of suffering because the container couldn't hold for whatever reasons. And particularly in the yoga community, a lot of it had to do with guru scandals, sex scandals, um, you're seeing that we've seen that in the Catholic church and other communities too, which goes back to what we were talking about, the shadow and wholeness and integration, the sexuality being completely cut off from spirituality in a lot of cases in our current culture. But that's the question. Each institution and each organization has its shadow. And for some of them, for whatever reason, a lot of the yoga communities has to do with sex and sexuality. For some of the other more new agey communities, it has to do with money. Money has been a huge shadow for a number of these uh, organizations and institutions, whether it's feeling not good enough, like we're not supposed to have money because money's not spiritual, or then you get the, the, the sort of shadow aspect of that, which has to do with power uh, and greed and the sort of insatiability of no money is enough money and we need more money. So we're going to get it by any means possible, which sometimes is, you know, has led to some other shadowy types of behavior. These small sort of spiritual startups, they have to take these questions very seriously because if they can't work with Senex and Pu'er in a very daily, mundane, operational way, they're not going to survive. Mm. One of the things I'm really interested in is this connection between charismatic founders and spiritual leaders and then the organizations that grow up around them and if you look at the history of uh, western mysticism or really any religious tradition but specifically in the catholic church just look at saint francis saint francis was this charismatic founder who had these extraordinarily uh, powerful mystical experiences gathered almost unintentionally gathered following that 
what do they want to do? We want to start an organization around you. Like, how do we make your legacy last? How do we create the Franciscans? And then when you look at the early history of these religious orders, from a Jungian perspective, you can see all the different personality types. You've got the charismatic founder, you've got like the intuitive sort of visionary founder, and you've got the more like sensate function, pragmatic, practical person who's trying to create laws and constitutions and rules for the order. And you need all these people in order to create the Franciscans. But then the next generation after Francis, you have this other group of people that ended up being called the spiritualists or the spiritual Franciscans who thought that the order had gone too far on the institutional side and had lost too much of the spirit. And then what ends up happening? If they can't hold, if the organization can't hold, it splits and it fragments and it fractures. And this is what's happened not only within Catholic religious orders, but within Christianity in, in Europe as a whole. It's how we got the Reformation. The Reformation was about reigniting the initial spirit of the puer of the founder. So now you end up with all these different factions and churches, but so much of this stuff, whether it's institutional, operational business practices, or looking at the you know, charismatic founders of religious orders and organizations, like, so much of this has to do with this basic archetypal principle of what we're mythologizing as the Senex and the puer. It's vitally important in any sort of living organization. And not just the spiritual conversation you're talking about, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about what's happening in American culture, maybe global culture, I can only speak to where I am, along the lines of, I don't want to limit it to technological development, but technology seems to be a pretty good metaphor where you have this split happening in American society as there's this progressive element that really just wants to carry forward and it has a strong puer energy to it like more and more bigger grow and then you have this other no i want to slow down now let's get back to nature let's or not just nature i just want to go back to the structures the way they were 20 years ago and the schisms the fissures are growing and everything that you were describing in the institution of the church and the institution of you know spiritual evolution it's applying to cultural the cultural evolution in a parallel way. What I hear, yes, it is vitally important to be looking at these things. How can, and we have to step back. If we're going to heal those fissures, if we're going to keep the thing together, we have to be able to step back and see what needs to be included and how to open dialogue between them. It's wholeness. We were talking earlier about personal wholeness or individual wholeness, but there's also a communal wholeness organizational wholeness. It's what our culture is going through right now, as far as attempting Biden's whole thing about what was it like recovering the soul of America. That wasn't, that was an urge or an impetus towards wholeness. It's about inclusion, diversity, equity, inclusion. So many, uh, at least institutes of higher ed are, are having those conversations right now. Like inclusion is a form of organizational wholeness. There's, a, there's an individual psyche and there's a corporate psyche. Right? And, and that's both corporate in the sense of our institutions where we run our workplaces, but also in our political structures and in our society, you know, we have, there's a global psyche and all we have to do is just add, like read the New York times and it'll tell you who are the, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And that's the New York times. And, and I mean, they're not the ones, they're the ones telling the story, but 
you know, they're, they're both reporting the news and they're telling a story just like any newspaper. So they're in any newspaper, whether it's a more liberal progressive paper or a more conservative quote unquote right wing paper, they're going to, they're going to mythologize and tell a story. And there's always going to be good guys and there's always going to be bad guys. So this whole superhero, like heroic complex thing, like it's being played out every day of our lives. That's why I'm, I'm critical of a lot of the superhero stuff now, because I don't know how much more. It'll be interesting just to tie a whole bunch of things together here. It'll be really interesting to see how that genre of, of superhero supervillain thing plays out, given what we were just talking about. Because if I really do believe that film is a way for us or for a, a, a culture to work their stuff out publicly. The tragedy was in ancient Greece. It's a way for people to work through their complexes and do therapy like as a group, almost like group therapy in a certain sense, like the whole idea of catharsis. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the, the, the superhero supervillain piece, because I, I don't know if a story would sell or be renewed for season two if there actually was any sort of integration. And I wonder if people will get tired of good guys beating up bad guys or bad guys winning and then waiting till season two for the good guys to win. I wonder how much of that our American pop culture consumer society will handle until they're like, what would it be like if the, the good guy, I, don't, I, I couldn't even tell you what a plot, how maybe you can answer that. What are some plot lines that have ended in some sort of integration where do, do people, do consumers want reconciliation? The, the team up when the bad guys and good guys team up to take on a bigger threat or the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. I can imagine it. I can imagine it. And, and I really liked the way Game of Thrones landed the plane where they all decided they needed to rebuild Westeros, but the humanity instantly emerged and there was, and there were new, it was clearly not going to be all sunshine and roses, but they were being true to themselves and they were working together to make something new. I don't know. It will be fascinating to watch it unfold. I'm really clear about this conversation that it's not going to end. We're just going to run out of time. So I want to bring this part in for a landing because there are four questions. I got one. I snuck one of them in early on in the interview, but there are four things I'd like to ask you. These have led to some interesting insights with other guests. Are you game? Yeah, please. Cool. So what is something that you believe to be true that you cannot prove? I guess the existence of a higher power. <laughs> Although I don't know. I, might be able to, I think there are ways to prove that. <laughs> What's the way to prove that? I think the the number of synchronicities that I've encountered in my life might all point to higher intelligence at work. In what ways are you the same now as you were when you were a little kid? Oh man, I'm thinking about this a lot as I engage with my early forties. I just bought a 1980 Murray BMX bike, and it's if this is not a midlife crisis, this is like midlife renewal. I don't know if that answers your question, but I almost feel it's it's talking about recovery and wholeness. Something has come back into my life that has just been extraordinarily yeah. BMX bikes, man, they're just especially for, for kids of the 80s. That's I feel like I've been given wings. It's just oh, that's awesome. Are you cruising around Ohio? Yeah, totally. That's totally what I'm doing. So, so great. 
this might tie into the synchronicity piece. Have you ever encountered a phenomenon that you just can't explain? And how do you think that has affected your worldview? I feel very blessed to be a person who synchronicity has, let's just say synchronicity touches my life. And it's oftentimes happened at moment, like very important moments. And one of the most extraordinary in my life to date is before I got hired at Pacifica, I was still working, I was in Western Massachusetts. I was still working at Kropalu. So my graduation from CIS was at the Palace of Fine Arts. And that was the last time I was there. So it was like May of 2015. I, I come out to Pacifica in November of that year. And it was a very important I ended up meeting the former president and it, it led to me being hired here. I had an Airbnb close to campus and I arrived very late after dark. I go in, I enter the Airbnb, I turn on the light in the bedroom and on the wall of the bedroom, there's a painting of the Palace of Fine Arts. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> and that's what I mean. Like it was, it was like stunner of a moment for me. I probably cried, but it's the linkage. And I think that's the thing with these moments, like these synchronicities, which is another conversation, but it, it's like they, it's like an electric current that jumps from one moment to, you just see how it jumps from what connects the links between one moment of sort of transition or opening into this other piece that became another moment of transition and opening. And people like to talk about the, the universe with a capital U. It was like the universe connecting the dots in that moment. And it was, it was still to this day, I have to remind myself of that when I, if I ever, you know, doubt or lose faith in the universe. It's like, no, this happens. This is real. And then I ended up getting hired and stayed at that Airbnb again when I moved here. <laughs> that threads the needle into this whole next chapter of your life. That's what, six, six years ago. And the last question I have is, when in your life have you experienced ecstasy? Man, that was a moment. That was, that was, sure, that was more like profound bafflement, but I'm very fortunate. Like I'm very blessed that I get to live in an extraordinarily beautiful place, both the Santa Barbara area with the coast and the front country, like the mountains, the hills, the foothills, like, and the back country and, and out in Ojai and parts of Ventura County. Like you asked me earlier about embodied spirituality for me, being in nature as a spiritual practice. And that's the only kind of ecstasy I'm interested in today. When I was a younger man, I was very interested in leaving my body. I was very interested in leaving this earth. I was really a sort of psychonaut without psychedelics. Like I was like a spiritual psychonaut. I was very interested in transcendence. I think that's a good way to put it. I was very interested in transcendence. And there's a certain kind of ecstasy that comes from transcendence. And these days I'm, I'm more and more interested in the imminent and the earth and what's happening below my feet and on the ground in front of me. And, I, and that's a very, that's also an ecstasy too. It's just one we don't hear about maybe so much. One of the distinctions I've been hearing lately is between spirit and soul. And my current orientation to spirit is that desire for transcendence, that expansion, that upward motion, and that soulfulness is something more soul is embodied. And we describe a spirited individual as somebody who's energetic and moving outward and soulful as something deep and connected and grounded and maybe cavernous. And so from spirit to soul is what I heard in what you just said. Mm. Is there anything burning in you? What's alive for you right now? 
I just think it's interesting that we had initially planned to talk a lot about the sort of comic book piece and superhero thing. And, and I'm just, I'm feeling like really uh, stoked on our conversation about like organizations and systems theory and like archetypal systems theory and all this stuff. I'm appreciating your openness and willingness to like wing it and just go with the spirit and see where that, that whole conversation went. So I'm, I'm actually feeling a lot of appreciation and gratitude for you. I'm awesome. I'm just, I'm happy to get to know you better. I'm really glad to be here. That's it for today, folks. If you want to learn more about David Odoricio or anything we talked about, check out mythicpodcast.com, where you can find show notes, more episodes, and a host of other resources. And if there was anything that jumped out at you that you'd like to discuss further, find me on Twitter at MythPod. That's M-Y-T-H-P-O-D. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. Until next time, journey on.